and then we'll uh welcome back to calling shots everyone seth partner here with my good friend one of my longest running friends in kind of the basketball industry i would say uh fred katz of the athletic nick's beat writer fred how are you doing today i'm uh i'm lovely we are long running friends I mean, we've known each other for 10 years I was thinking about that and my, the first article I wrote in kind of this path was in November, 2013. So coming up on a decade, which is, um, it, it seems like forever ago and also yesterday. Um, it shouts to Clipper blog live, of course. Yeah. Clipper blog. I, you know what people, I, I was going to say people don't realize this, but, but the reason that people don't realize this is because it's insanely niche and how the hell would anybody know this? But people do not realize that Clipper Blog, R.I.P. Clipper Blog, a, a former Clippers fan site, has like incredible alums. I mean, like, it starts with Arnovitz, right? Starts with Kevin Arnovitz. You got Andrew Hahn, who doesn't want anyone to know that he's a high up at ESPN, but but he is. You got you, you got Sirit Soe, you got Yovan Buha, who's now a B-Rider covering the Lakers. You got Law Murray, who's now a B-Rider covering the Clippers. Um, loaded. Got Andy Liu, shit poster extraordinaire of uh, <laughs> of the Light Years pod. And yeah, and, and, uh, Charlie Widows, uh, who, Charlie where, where's Widows, Charlie now? Yeah. Charlie's with uh, the Nets. Uh, PR for the Nets, yeah. Um, right, loaded. Great, great group of folks. Um, great. Cool. So, so yeah, anyway, so Clipper Blog, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Knicks. The um, the confusing New York Knickerbockers, who are currently in, I believe, seventh place in the East. Um, it's been, an, it's fair to say, an up-and-down season. Uh, highs, lows, and everything in between thus far. Yes, fair to say that. I, you know, I wrote, I wrote a line about the Knicks a couple of weeks ago. And, and the, I believe I don't write my headlines. Editors write headlines, but, but I, I believe I, I liked this headline that my editor wrote. And it was, uh, I believe it was, uh, the Knicks are weird. Let's talk about it. And <laughs> that was a really good headline. And the story was exactly what it sounds like. It was the Knicks keep doing this weird stuff. And, and yet, like, they're kind of where we expect them to be at the time they were hovering around 500. Uh, now they're four games over. Uh, and, and in that story, I wrote a line where I said, this next season is like if you put an address into GPS that keeps taking you on service roads. It, it, it's, you know where it's going. You know it's somewhere in the six to nine range in the east six to eight range in the east but it's taken these weird swerves and they're getting there in these unexpected ways and it almost feels like they've had a number of different seasons within this season you know the season with evan fournier starting and the season with cam reddish starting and the season now you know post december 3rd where they're you know 15 and 8 over over their last uh was it 23 games and and the defense is totally ticked up. And, Basically, and it's, it's, since since Tibbs was one game or so from getting fired, if recording was to, if, if reporting was to be believed, um, 
they, they're <laughs> like they a strong bounce back from from that low point, which I feel like we talked right around that time. Yeah, we might have. We might have. I can't remember. But yeah, they're just they do a lot of weird stuff and they're they're pretty good. I mean, they're are they still top 10 in 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 defense? They might be 11th in defense right now. Yeah, they're 11th in defense right now. Um, they're 8th in offense. They are ninth in net rating. I mean, that's a good team. They're four games over 500. That's a good team. But they, they've taken a, a quite circuitous route to get there. Uh, and they've, they've cycled through a few different identities before kind of landing on the one they have, which is one that is going to guard. It's going to be physical. It's going to punch you in the mouth, even in the way that it's going to be a top 10 offense, which is crazy that they've become a top 10 offense. I mean, they are seriously, I think, uh, outplaying expectations on that side of the ball. Uh, you know, they're going to get there in a smash mouth way, not by chucking threes and all of that. They're going to get there in a, in a grabbing offensive rebounds, not turning it over, winning the possession game sort of way. And uh, they've, they've figured out a nice little identity for themselves. So they're doing it in tipsy ways, basically, what you're saying. Yeah, but you know what? I, I have always believed. I mean, I wouldn't say in a... Yes, somewhat in a Tibsy way, but not all the way in the way that we think of as Tibsy. Like, they have one of the most analytically friendly shot profiles in the league now. And, and I know that's a that's not in spite of Tibbs. That's because of Tibbs. He's really been pushing that the last few years. I'm like cutting out the mid-range. And they've really – you know what I think is interesting? I was thinking about this yesterday, and I wrote a little blurb on it. There are the, – of the 10 teams who are in the top 10 in offense right now, only two of them are in the bottom half of the league in three-point percentage. And it's the Knicks and the Grizzlies. And if you look at those two offenses, they've got a lot of similarities, right? Like, yeah, they don't make a lot of threes. They don't rely on the three in terms of just, like, needing to hit a bunch of them in order to score. But they have the two best offensive rebounders in the NBA, in my opinion, Stephen Adams on the Grizzlies and Mitchell Robinson on the Knicks. They have dynamic point guards who are – really really good and efficient inside the three-point arc and they're like both incredibly reliant and incredibly good at flow at floaters and i wonder if that's a sort of i was gonna pick a third i was gonna pick another one yeah uh small forwards with questionable shot selection and mediocre shot making uh but but play pretty good defense in dylan brooks and and uh podcast favorite rj barrett well i was thinking more from like the if you're a team that doesn't shoot threes, is this a replicable sort of model sort right. of thing? Or is it, or is it, or is it a total coincidence that those are the two teams in the top 10 and they just happen to have those similarities? I, I, I don't know the answer, but I was sitting there thinking about it last night, wondering, uh, you know, how, how much of a coincidence that is versus how replicable it might be for another team to try. I feel like the biggest difference is, is since we're talking about the Grizz, and this is probably why the Grizz are, are frankly a little bit better than the Knicks, is is because of 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 Jaw that the the Grizz sort of have first first uh, first chance pressure on the rim that the Knicks maybe don't get with as much regularity. Like both of them put pressure on the rim by way of the offensive rebounding. I think is it's correct to say, but in terms of, I don't think there's any there's anyone on the Knicks who can you know break a defense down as as good as Jalen Brunson has been he's not breaking a defense down and collapsing it in the same way as John Morant is no I mean almost nobody is right so that's not not, it's not a knock on Jalen Brunson who's been great almost no one's capable of doing that 
Yeah. So but that's one of the things that I wonder about with the Knicks. Like, okay, okay. Can we talk about Mitchell Robinson for a second? Because that's the newsworthy part, right? Sure. So Mitchell Robinson's out at least three weeks. He's being reevaluated in three weeks because he fractured his thumb on Wednesday, and that's one of the things that I keep wondering about. You know, the obvious questions when. Mitchell Robinson goes out is what the heck happens to the defense. And I understand that that's the first thing everybody has to ask because Mitchell Robinson is unquestionably their most important defender. They scheme everything. And this is tipsy. They scheme every scheme, everything from, from the paint out. They want to take away the paint. They want to take away the rim. They want to take away dumps, dunks. They want to take away layups and they want to take the ability, take away the ability for an offense to hit the paint and then kick back out for corner threes. And that, is what they base all of their schemes on. That principal concept, take away the pain, and Mitchell Robinson is the most important guy for that, and he has been really good this year. He's way more disciplined as a rim protector. He's way more disciplined as a pick-and-roll defender. He's become a much better positional defender, and he's still obviously a really good shot blocker and is so athletic and all of that. He's so important for them defensively. I get it. And people don't think of him as an offensive guy because he scores seven points a game and can't do really anything once he has the ball. He can't score anywhere if he can't dunk it. He has to dunk. Otherwise, he's not even putting up a shot, let alone making one. But them winning the possession game and them being in the top ten, the things that we're naming right there, like maybe the first thing that we're talking about is an important part of getting them into the top ten offensively when they're not hitting their threes is that offensive rebounding which he is phenomenal at. And their offense is six points per 100 possessions better when he's on the floor, in spite of all the spacing cramps that come with him being out of there. And and it's because the offensive rebounding is totally and completely ridiculous. You know, teams are sending three guys at him at a time just to try to get it. And so even if he doesn't get the offensive rebound, you see guys like Quickly or Grimes just swoop in and get offensive boards, which they wouldn't otherwise be getting because their men are flying over to Mitchell Robinson to try to box him out because they feel like they have to triple team him on the offensive board. So that is going to be really interesting to follow, uh, seeing how the offensive rebounding progresses. Now, Hartenstein's been a good offensive rebounder this year. Jericho Sims has been a good offensive rebounder this year. But Mitchell Robinson is in another class from, I, in my opinion, everybody in the NBA other than Steven Adams when it comes to offensive rebounding. Maybe... Andre Drummond, although I think I'd take Mitch over Andre Drummond. Uh, so it's that is that is a really, really, really harmful loss for them too with Robinson going out. More harmful offensively, like everything you just said, more harmful offensively or defensively, just because Hartenstein has really struggled on that end. Um, and I don't know how much you really want to trust Jericho Sims as you know as a you know, a 25 plus minute paint anchor. Yeah. I mean, I actually think Sims, I wouldn't be shocked, shocked if Sims came out and played really well and proved to be really important. The thing with Sims that, that they can do is they can play differently with Sims out there and they can switch a lot and they really trust him. Not just guarding, you know, Mitch is like, he switches more than he did two years ago. But Mitch's strength is kind of play, playing down low in the paint and staying around there and being able to bother drivers and all that when he's, he's around the paint. And Sims, they're, they're going to let him stray far from the rim. They can switch more. 
They can blitz with him pretty confidently. Uh, they they feel good about him guarding wings. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't blame them. Uh, so I, I wonder how much their defensive identity is going to change when Sims is out there and, and playing more minutes because they've used him in a variety of coverages. Tibbs just loves his quickness on the perimeter and his ability to man guys of different sizes, different speeds, different bodies. So I, I, I actually think there might be something there with Jericho Sims. I worry more with Sims on the offensive side because he gives you the the same spacing constraints that Mitchell Robinson does, but without absolutely dominant offensive rebounding. Even though he is pretty relentless on the board, there's certainly a good offensive rebounder. I think the the biggest worry about putting Sims in that spot is he he's he's he has been over his limited and maker. He's been very foul prone, and mm-hmm. that and just so so like that's a that is a classic like. 10 to 15 minute a game energy big rather than a spot start. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And you know what? Hartenstein is foul prone as well. That's going to be a big thing for them because there, there will be a game. I mean, they play the Hawks tonight and there will be a game. It could be as soon as tonight's game where Hartenstein picks up a couple of fouls, four minutes into the game. Sims picks up a couple of fouls four minutes later, and Tibbs has to figure out what he wants to do with both of his bigs in foul trouble for the whole rest of the game. And to to uh, put a point on that, by the way, there's 253, according to basketball reference, 253 minutes qualified players for per 36 stats. Uh, they are uh, 14th Sims and 22nd Hartenstein in uh, fouls per 36. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. Top ten percent for both. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's a lot of fouling. And you know what? It, sometimes I've never asked either of them this. I should. It would be it would be an interesting thing to learn. There are some guys who are backup centers who come in and they actually foul a lot because they know they can foul a lot. Yep. You know, they it's it's not necessarily part of their game if they know that they're playing 30 minutes. Right. But they come out and they say, okay, I'm, I'm a backup center and my job is to just just be physical as hell. And because I'm a backup center, I'm not playing more than 15 minutes. Basically, no matter what, I'm not playing more than 15 minutes. I'm not going to get six fouls in 15 minutes, so who gives a crap if I get four, yeah. if it means playing way better defense. Right. So, so the fouls... The fouls sometimes per 36 can go down when certain guys start playing more minutes. But Hartenstein is a historically foul-prone player. Uh, it's not like this is this is new. And when he was playing some more minutes, and you know, I think he was still five fouls per 36 last year with the Clippers. And that's, that's definitely always been a thing. And uh, Sims, the fouls that you see him get aren't... They're of the young, overzealous, yeah. overeager big man type, you know, leaving his feet when he shouldn't, maybe getting a hand caught in the cookie jar when he should have been straight up instead of a little forward, you know, a verticality where his his, his arms are forward instead of back, going for a block, stuff like that, uh, which, which I think will eventually get ironed out because I actually think he's pretty smart and understands the game pretty well and has progressed very nicely since his rookie year defensively. But, you know, he's young. He's a second year in the league. That, that's something that happens with almost every single big man 
during his second there. Yeah, that, that's fair. But I do, I mean, this is, this is sort of a, it's, it's, uh, in the past, I think I've referred to this as the Leroy Horde problem. I don't, you probably don't remember Leroy Horde, but he was a, he was a fullback in the NFL for a while. And he gave a quote, he was a very good goal linebacker. And he had, he gave a quote, like a, a very self-aware guy, it seems as well. Uh, you know, you need a yard, I'll get you three. You need five yards, I'll get you three. Uh, and that's, and that seems there's a lot of the, this kind of energy backup big that you're not actually, you know, you extend their minutes and because they can't play with that abandon, you're, you're kind of sacrificing a lot of what makes them effective in, in short minutes. So that would be my worry there. And that leads me to my sort of one of my next questions is, and I think this is an open question for them is we know Tibbs likes to play a big. You've talked about this. We've talked about this. Comes up all the time in the context of Obi Toppin. Uh, but how much are they going to play small? I don't know the answer. <laughs> I think they'll play small some. Mitchell Robinson missed some time early in the season, and they did go small more. They used the Obi Toppin, Julius Randle front court more. Those guys have played 70 minutes together so far this year. The Knicks are a minus two in those minutes. There's really nothing to take away from that. It's 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 you know nope. just not enough time seeing it. Shut it down. Uh, yep. Getting out scored. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> There's <laughs> nothing to take away from that in either direction. It's just not enough. Uh, but but uh, I have to imagine that he will. Whether it's because he does it proactively or because he's forced into it by the situation. Because I think there are going to be nights, and, and something that we haven't addressed is that Harkenstein has really struggled. I mean, he, is, he has not been the same guy who was with the Clippers last year, and he's been dealing with a little bit of an Achilles thing all year, which he says has been better lately, but is still bothering him. Uh, and, and he just hasn't, he hasn't looked comfortable within the offense. Defensively, I think he struggled more than he did with the Clippers last year, who used him really well as a rim protector. Uh, so I just think he hasn't been that guy. And whether because, let's say Tibbs just isn't proactive about going to the small lineup, right? Uh, he still might have to do it. He might be forced into it because Hartenstein and Sims are in foul trouble. He might be forced into it because another team is taking advantage of you know, Hartenstein or Sims on one side of the floor and they just kind of play them off the floor. Uh, there, there are various reasons why they might feel like they have to go small. He might, he might use it as, you know, hey, they're down seven with six minutes left and let's try to get some, you know, some offense on the floor and see if he can come back. But one thing that has to be the case if you're going to see him do it more, Obi Toppin's got to play better too. I mean, he's he's gotten up to a really, really slow start coming back from his leg injury. He scored 13 points in six games and and is just not flowing the same way that he normally does. You know, the, the thing that's so noticeable about Obi's game is that he has this relentless energy at all times, and he's always doing something. That's his... That's his best offensive trait. His best offensive trait is that he's always doing something. He's rarely doing nothing. Uh, you know, if, if something is stagnant, he'll cut or he'll screen or he'll go into a dribble handoff or something. And he makes really quick decisions and they're good decisions. And that is just an underrated basketball skill that that honestly is, is pretty rare. Not a lot of people have it. And he's very good at that on offense. And lately, he's been hesitant. 
he's almost been stoic. He played 14 minutes against the Wizards on Wednesday, and he touched the ball in the front court six times in 14 minutes. He, you know, the last time that he scored in the half court off of a cut, Seth, December fourth. That seems like a long time. Al yeah, Horford has shot missed. free throws since then. That's been that's how long it's been. <laughs> yeah, Ben Simmons has made three free throws since then. So it's a it's it's a lot. Uh, he he and and he obviously he he was out for a month. So it's not as long ago as it seems. But it's like eight games ago or something when this was, you know, when Obi's going well. This is an occurrence multiple times a game. That's how he gets all of his points. You know, when he's going well, he's. He's scoring off of cuts. He's scoring on on breaks. He is he's scoring off off of you know setting a screen and then going like that's how he's getting his points. And you know I think a lot of criticism has been put towards the coaching staff and to Tibbs on how they're using him and how they basically operate him as a stretch four. And I, I get it. I, I I think some of those criticisms are totally reasonable. And you know Obi's his best when when he's going at the rim and 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 all of that but they're not necessarily using him differently than they were using him before. He's just operating differently within that role than he was before. Uh, and it's, it's something that I think has to, has to get better if, if you know, for those who, who want to see more of a top and Randall front court, because if Obi is balling out, then Tibbs you know, might be forced to go with it. But if Obi is scoring two points a game, then, you know, you're just kind of, you're just going smaller, but you're not necessarily adding firepower. Sure. No, I as I think I've I've been critical of how the Knicks have used Toppin in the past. However, given, you know, that they're kind of, you know, fluttering around that top ten, top ten in offense and defense, it is worth noting that his job isn't to maximize Obi Toppin, it's to maximize the Knicks. And if the way for the Knicks to play does not involve getting the person in that spot to do a lot of cutting it may not be my aesthetic choice of basketball but you know you're getting a getting a top 10 offense out of this group is like okay what 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 more do you what more do you want here are you not entertained a little bit is is what that is yeah Um, no i mean they've done a good job with the offense this year like i i absolutely i didn't think they were going to be top half of the league in offense I thought they'd be top half of the league in defense because, you know, that's just kind of what Tibbs does, and they were going to figure out a way to do that. But I I didn't think they'd be top half of the league in offense, and they're top ten. And they've been consistently top ten for a long time. It's not like they're on some insane hot streak for the last seven games that's propped them up. Like, they have been in the the seven to ten range in offense for, like, a while now. And, you know, Brunson has been awesome, and and Randall has been really, really good. And you know, like I said, they just they don't turn it over. They get offensive rebounds. Like they they are really good at floaters. And it's not it's they're not the uh, twenty fourteen San Antonio Spurs, but it it it's working. Like the ball is going in the basket. You don't get points for style. Um, I want to. I think another point on the being forced to go small, and this is maybe it's a it's a stilted st- segue into something that that we worked on together. Uh, was it last week, two weeks? Ago? I don't remember. The Knicks don't don't seem like they're a team that can really. The worry about Tibbs being forced into playing small 
is that the Knicks have not been a very good comeback team this year. Is that fair to sure. say? That I mean, is definitely fair to say. Seth, do you want to run through some of the numbers that we found as of last week? Or they, oh, I should say that you, that, that you found and that I wrote. Uh, if, I mean, if you have them in front of you, go ahead. But basically, the Knicks are the Knicks are are one of among the higher teams in giving up ten point leads and losing, and are one of the least successful teams in coming back from ten point leads and winning in the league thus far this season. Right. The Knicks. When we when when I published that story, so this was as of a week ago, so it's a few games outdated. But when when I published that story last week. The Knicks had won only twelve and a half percent of the games that they were down that they were at some point down ten in. Or I should say, let me phrase it in a less confusing way. When the Knicks fall down double digit points in a game, they win that game only twelve and a half percent of the time. And obviously falling down double digits and coming back, you think it was a really difficult thing, but it's significantly more common now. And twelve and a half percent is the third worst winning percentage in give or take half the league average yeah yeah and it's the third worst in the nba the only teams that have a worse winning percentage in games that they fall down 10 are the charlotte hornets who were like a little over nine percent and the san antonio spurs who have not had a 10-point comeback this season they're the only team in the league that doesn't have a 10-point comeback the two of the teams least interested in winning games this season basically Like they, sure. two, two of the more drop the rope teams in, in the league this season. Exactly. Um, and so and so kind of my working theory on all of it was like everybody freaks out about the Knicks letting go of, of, of double digit leads. When when it, what's happening with them is not remarkable. As uh, you know, as we, as, as we found out with your research there, 26 percent of games this season include the winning team coming back from down 10 or more points. Uh but the thing with the Knicks is they're not actually doing comebacks of their own. So they just have this large disparity of, you know, giving up 10-point leads but not actually coming back from down 10. And, uh, yeah, so go into your thing. Go into your thing with going small and comebacks. So, I know, that, I mean, that's the, like if, if – if, uh, that, that's just my, – my point is they're a team that for whatever reason probably because – like the best version of them is more of a slow down smash mouth not especially explosive but effective offensive team uh both from a kind of a a, a possession to possession variance and pace standpoint like they are not as equipped to you know flip the, like they're they're the good version of them is not the kind of team that that plays as plays super well from five possessions behind because they're they they are shorter possessions and they're not likely they're not a team that's going to score eight points and three trips down the court all the court all that often. Yes, I mean that's definitely true, and 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 I mean I would say that the most likely reason for that is the lack of three point shooting, right? I mean, they both just, the lack of three point shooting and also the like they're they're also not going to get it given the the reliance on the floater rather than getting all the way to the bucket. And also the best offensive rebounder being a poor free throw shooter, uh, and even when he was healthy, is that they're not also going to get a lot of end ones. So the, the 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 extra points that teams can get from kind of getting to the bucket and, um, you know, uh, shooting threes, they're just not having happen. Um, I 
So I wanted to, the other question I wanted to ask about this is is this I think maybe it ties into the the comeback swinginess or lack thereof, but also the up and downness of the season. There's two two kind of other stats that I've that I kind of track over the course of the season. One, the Knicks have not been an especially good clutch team. Um, I have them, you know, I have a fairly simple model based on how a team plays in non-clutch games as well as like the situation in which they enter the clutch. Um, there's a there's a pretty big swing if you you know get to five minutes and you're up five with the ball, or you get to five minutes and you're down five and the other team has the ball. That's about there's about an eighty percent like one of them you you win ninety percent of the time, the other one you you win ten percent of the time, give or take. So taking that into account, the Knicks are about two games under expected in clutch situations, and that's among the the worst marks in the league. On top of that, uh, if you look at their performance versus teams that are on a 51 pace, they're 2-8. and eight. Against teams that are on a below 35-win pace, they're 10-2. and two. That's among the larger disparities in the league as well. So I'm wondering if just like the, the inability to, it seems to me, close out close games against good teams, probably some of whom they've let back in the game, uh how much that that has played into sort of the overall up and down swinginess of the season in that you know one of their 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 big run was they played like the Spurs twice and and a few other like not so good teams in in a row if i remember correctly yeah i mean they look i think part of this is just like i think part of it is just the obvious statement right it's it's their their a 500 team to a little better than a 500 team. And thus they don't beat the really good teams, but they can beat up on the teams they're better than. And I, I, I think part of it is as simple as that. As for, as for the crunch time stuff, you know, one thing that I've looked at is the offense, people complain about Knicks fans complain a lot about the, the offense going stagnant during clutch time and, and them really just going into your turn, my turn and, Randall has a possession and Brunson has a possession and yada, yada. Uh, the offense actually hasn't really been a problem if you look at the numbers in, in close games. In games within five points of five or fewer minutes to go, the Knicks have the eighth best offense in the NBA, which is exactly where they rank in the rest of, you know, the rest of games. They're eighth in the NBA on the season in points per possession. So the offense is not really the issue. Problem's been on defense, where for some reason they're giving up 120 points per 100 possessions, which is like one of the worst numbers in the league when games are within five points with five or fewer minutes to go. I don't know why, honestly. I haven't looked into it enough to know why the numbers are that bad. The answer could be as simple as a couple teams got really hot and hit some threes, and that was enough to skew the numbers from fine to terrible, and that was it. But, uh, you know, that that's really what the issue has been late and close. It hasn't as much been the offense. Like, Brunson has been really good in those situations. Uh, and, and that's, I think, really, really carried them. He's actually been one of the best clutch players in the league. But I don't know. I, you have any thoughts on the defense thing? Um, This is more of a qualitative statement. They seem to be one of the team that, like, efforts themselves – into giving up open shots at inopportune times, like a situation where, all right, we're up five with uh, 
30 seconds left. I don't have a specific game, but this is just an impression I've gotten from watching that game. We're up five with 30 seconds left. A guy's going to the basket. Oh, shit, a guy's going to the basket. Let me fly off my guy in the corner and help. It's like the layup doesn't hurt you. The three hurts you. And it seems like they effort themselves because it's like, oh, I got to make the play. got to get there. got to help. And then my guy is standing behind me in the corner shooting a wide open three. That's I, I have that impression of them in close games a lot where they're trying hard to make a play that isn't there almost. I get that. That will happen. That will happen. They'll leave the corner shooter open or something like that. Uh, you want to hear a fun want to hear a fun fact though? A, a, a good reason why the offense has been good during crunch time. Jalen Brunson right now. And and by the way, Seth, there is a clutch player of the year award this year. I don't know how the hell voters are supposed to vote on that. They're going to go to unpredictable and and uh, go with uh, cl- um, Mike Bowie's uh, clutch wins added metric. That's it's, how they should do it. It is it is the most ridiculous award. I there are some awards that I thought were dumb, but I got like I don't like most improved player, and the reason why I don't like most improved player is because it is the only award that you can. That, that ends up turning into the, a debate of who was worse last year, you know? It's like nobody's being like, well, Jokic was worse than Embiid last year, and thus Jokic deserves the MVP this year. But that's what happens with most improved because we're debating over who improved the most as opposed to just who's better. This one is worse. But that being said, if you're just going to go off of clutch numbers, because I don't know how else to do it, then Jalen Brunson is going <laughs> to – Gonna be on ballots, however the hell the voting works for it. Jalen Brunson in clutch time this year, he is averaging thirty six point eight points per thirty six minutes. That is the fifth best number in the league, and he's doing it on fifty five percent shooting and fifty percent three point shooting. And by the way, he's shooting eighty two percent from the line. Seems good. Uh, he he has been so unbelievably reliable for them, and and it just comes down to the fact that like. Yeah, the offense definitely goes stagnant. Yeah, they don't have a ton of passes in their offense. There's no question. But it's like Jalen Brunson is really good at creating his own shot. And and I don't think the Knicks have had a guy quite with with this degree of quality, like this quality since Melo, where you can give him the ball and – it doesn't matter if there are 10 seconds left on the shot clock or eight seconds or he's starting a possession. He is going to be able to get a shot that you're fine with at any point uh, and that has a pretty decent enough chance of going in. And, and that's an incredible type of player to have on your team late in the game. And uh, look, if you replay this season over a million times, uh, is Jalen Brunson going to shoot 55 from the field and 50, per, and 50 from three in clutch time? Uh, almost certainly not. But, like, I'm looking at it. He's doing it. And it's it's kind of crazy, the element that he's brought to this team. And that's just another one of them. So, I th- I, I'm, at this point, it's funny. It's his first year there because I'm always taking Brunson as a given. And I sort of feel like one of the bigger hinge points of the next season is them realizing that the young guards are good. I think that's fair. Um, I've been, you know, I've been a, I've been a fan of both uh, Emmanuel Quickly and Quentin Grimes. We said on this very show 
that Quentin Grimes might be the next best prospect. Um, and it seems like they have, uh, uh, you know, uh, Mike Vorkanoff was writing about it today, I think, that, um, you know, quickly was a trade chip and he is no more uh, because the Knicks realize he's good. Yes, I think that's true. I don't know if, I wouldn't say he is no more, but I would say that teams that I've spoken to who have, who were previously in contact with the Knicks about quickly, you know, two months ago when they were 10 and 13 or 10 and 12 or whatever. And the Knicks were definitely having legitimate conversations with other teams about quickly where they were talking, they were talking potential offers. They were saying offers that they had on, on the table elsewhere. Like they were legitimately having conversations with other teams about quickly. And, and now when you talk to other teams about the Knicks, uh, the way the Knicks are are approaching quickly when another team mentions him, and they're far more resistant to the idea of trading him. Uh, and part of that is surely just the way that quickly has played over the last month and a half, where he has been on a roll. And I think part of it is also that, like you mentioned it earlier, that that they're in a full rotation crunch right now, and basically there are only five guys who are going to be playing in the game tonight who Tibbs has really shown a lot of trust in over the last two weeks. Uh, now that Mitchell Robinson is out, it was six. And now with Robinson out, it's really just five. And, and you look at the, the minutes totals and you see how guys are, you know, how much guys are playing now. And, you know, quickly is one of them. He's one of those guys that has Tibbs's trust. And this is not like, you know, a damning indictment on Tibbs playing his guys minutes. It's just a reality of how many guys on the team he trusts. You need, you need more than five, uh, and so it's really difficult to trade away one of those five when, when you only have five. Uh, so I'm, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think, I mean, there might be something. Who the heck knows what's going to happen, what's going to present itself moving towards the deadline, but there's definitely no question the teams around the league have gotten a very different impression on how the Knicks want to handle quickly today than they were getting two months ago. So it's interesting to me that the five guys that are kind of available – are what is to me the Knicks' most interesting lineup, which is Brunson, Quickly, Grimes, Barrett, Randall. How has that group? That's a, that is that is a non-Tibbsy lineup in the extreme. That's Don oh, yeah. Nelson. Don Nelson is 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 salivating over that lineup. But how has that group looked together? Is that tenable? Can can Tibbs coach the coach a team up? to play in a coherent way with that kind of, you know, that, that kind of small ball. That is like a very not Tibbsy line. Like Tibbs, Tibbs wants a rim protector out there. He has played RJ at the foursome, uh, but he's done it next to a center. Uh, that, that lineup would be interesting. I'm trying to think of a way that Tibbs would play that like you'd probably need foul trouble from some guys you would probably need like i don't know what is the scenario Seth, that you think tibbs actually goes with that those those five together um sims and hartenstein are not great on a given night and it's like screw them go my guys maybe i guess it's possible like they have literally played together they have 
they have played like Tibbs has played that lineup. He's just done it very, very seldom. I can't remember off the top of my head the scenario where he played that lineup together. I can't remember it. Um, but but I know he has played that lineup. I'm. It'll be interesting. I guess you're right. I guess it is on the table. It is possible that he just says. Because you know what, it's it's not. I'm thinking out loud because I haven't really thought about this to be honest. So this is a good question. It, it maybe it's not untibsy. You know, the reaction that you first say when you look at it is like, okay, well, you got Randall at the five, you got Barrett, who's like, you know, a guard at the four. Uh, but those and, are some pretty. Those are some. Those guys might be small, but those are some pretty hard nosed guys. Oh yeah, totally. And they play really hard, like Grimes. Like they they were using Grimes to guard Pascal Siakam last week. Like they they like Grimes on everybody, and and quickly is such a great off ball defender that you just put him on anybody anybody in the corner, and he is just gonna be so helpful to you defensively. Uh, yeah, you're right. Maybe it's not. It's, it's untibsy because you don't have a rim protector out there and you're playing really small and Tibbs wants size and wants to take away the paint and wants a physical presence and all of that. But it's not untibsy in that when Tibbs trusts you, he really trusts you, right? And he trusts those five guys. Those are the guys he trusts. And so maybe you're right. Maybe he might be prone at some point to just be like, Screw it. Hartenstein's not playing well. Sims isn't playing well. Obi's not playing well. McBride's not playing well. Screw it. I'm going with my guys. Let's do it. These are the these are the five guys that are playing well. So you're going together. So I, maybe you're right. I mean, they they, they should try it. I, I mean, if you think about the coach who's actually, if you get past sort of the better PR, the most tibsy other coach in the league is probably Nick Nurse. Mm-hmm. And we've seen what Nick Nurse will do in this situation. Those are my guys. Yeah. My team is on the floor. I mean, if it, like I could, I could sub someone in for someone who fouled out, or I could play with four. Would generally, would genuinely think about it. But yeah, yeah. Well, everybody talks about. It is funny how like everybody talks about Tibbs being a minotown and and Nick Nurse being a genius. And by the way, Nick Nurse is a very good coach. But the Raptors' minutes totals are wild. <laughs> they are insane. Uh, the other Poor Fred Van Vliet. Is, I think I think Nick Nurse is is more flexible in game than Tibbs, uh, where he he is going to adjust on things like crazy. He's going to throw a million different types of defenses at you and a million different kinds of lineups. And it's like, okay, well, our five best players are don't include a center. That's fine. We're starting Pascal Siakam at the five. Like that's just what we're going to do. Uh, so so I think they're different in in that sense. But yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, they definitely have similar approaches to coaching. Um, and, and yeah, m- maybe he does it. It's, it's worth actually writing something on and thinking about deeper on and, and writing something about that, because that, that would be an interesting lineup because you basically have five guys out there who can handle the ball. And that, that is going to help you overcome, even though you're small there, it's not like you're overwhelmed with shooting, right? Like, Quickly is quickly you have to guard, but he's thirty three percent three point shooter right now. And RJ, uh, you know, you can help off of RJ and, and Randall teams, even though he'll put him up, teams still help off of him. And you know, that's that's it's not like that's overloaded with shooting, but 
what you do have is you have five guys who you have to worry about putting it on the floor. And, and that is really exhausting for a defense. I think we've seen that be a little, that's starting to become a little bit of a cheat code. Like people, like the five out thing with the shooting big, I think the next evolution of it, and we've seen it from, even though Boston has had shooting bigs, like, you know, uh, Horford and, and Grant Williams when he, when he's playing like a, like a four or five, but it's more than that. It's the, it's the, the five guys who can handle the ball. And Utah's had a lot of this this year. I mean, Utah's, Utah's bigs are, you know, Kelly Olenek and, and even Walker Kessler. Walker Kessler handles the ball pretty well. Um, so they have five guys who can put the ball on the floor and make a play with the ball. So having, you know, that sort of, that's, that can be very difficult to guard. Now that, that involves an offense with some, you know, movement and interchanges in it, um, which hasn't always been a tip staple, but there's a, there's a path for that working and for the combination of the offense being good and the defense being gritty enough that it's, it, it works until the yeah. guy's legs all fall off because they're playing 43 minutes a night. <laughs> I think, I think you're definitely right on that. I mean, look, that that's, if you just follow the trend, that's where this is naturally going, right? Like 10 years ago, we talked about stretch fours and how that was the way of, oh, you need to go get a stretch four. No one really talks about stretch fours anymore. And the reason why you don't really talk about stretch fours is because stretch fours pretty quickly became a relic because now you want playmaking fours. And now you see a lot of wings who basically play the four because you yeah. want a playmaking four. And, and now you see stretch fives. And at some point, we're going to start to see more and more playmaking fives. And they don't have to be Nikola Jokic, but they have to be guys who can put the ball on the floor. Oh, this and, is... I, it, it's happening for sure. Yeah, no, this is this is. I mean, I this, I'm a brokered record on this, but this is a big part of why guys like Jared Allen and Robert Williams are so valuable. Is they're not they're not great ball handlers. You don't want them putting on the ball on the floor necessarily, but they're guys who can catch the ball in space and make a play with it, and and do that and be great rim protectors. And that's sort of like, are either of those guys as good a rim protector as say Rudy Gobert? Maybe, maybe Robert Williams is, but you can involve them so much more in different like offensive things that that holistically that becomes a more valuable, versatile thing for for a team from a team standpoint. Totally love Robert Williams; such a good passer. He like when they give him the ball in the high post, he he plays some really beautiful basketball. So I'm he, with I mean, he. I just. I go back to his the the, the uh, college the, the coach at Texas A and M. Um, it's good for the Celtics, but unfortunately for for him, like cost him so much money by just how they played. Um, they they he was like the second big, um, and and they never put him in like spread pick and roll or anything like that. And it's like, actually, no. When they when they throw him the ball, he can do some stuff with it, but they just never did it. Anyway, I don't know why we got talked. We got we got sidetracked onto 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 Big Bob. Um, I did want to hit on a little bit, and we talked, we touched on it with with respect to quickly, but um, the trade deadline's coming up, and the Knicks are in kind of an interesting spot. You know, they're kind of one of the one of that seems like the two thirds of the league that's kind of stuck in the middle this year. Um, a, what are they going to do? B, is there any sense that? Um, a certain viewpoint is sort of ascendant in their decision-making now that might lead them one way or another. I guess those are two very different, very big questions. So um, whichever order or whichever weight you want to answer them with. Yeah, so I think they're going to try to get better. 
Like, it's not like, you know, some sort of move where they trade away. Like, I, I, like, I really don't think they're just trading quickly for a pick. I really don't think that's happening. I think they're gonna. I think they're gonna try to get better. Uh, I think, yeah, I don't see a move where they just like trade quickly for a pick or something like that. Derrick Rose can definitely be had. Evan Fournier can definitely be had. Cam Reddish can definitely be had. I would be surprised if there was not a Cam Reddish trade. That being said, I don't think that trade is really going to be for bringing anything of value back. I just don't think that's Reddish's. I don't think that's Reddish. Reddish has much of a market anymore. One of the things with Reddish, by the way, is people think, oh, he's young. He's restricted in the upcoming summer. Is he, you know, you can, you still at least have team control if you like him. And, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm doing a little trade deadline preview sort of thing for next week. And I'm going to put this in a uh, pretty good chance. Cam Reddish isn't going to be restricted, right? Because his qualifying offer is $8 million. Like, are you, who's offering him the qualifying offer? Yeah, he's he's gonna take that. Well, you gotta. I mean, I think if if you like, basically, you use the threat of restricted free agency to if you get him to sign for three twenty one or something like that. Or, um, but is that I think, his market though? I don't know. No. I asked around. I don't. Yeah. I don't think that's his market. Like I mean, maybe. I, I mean, does he take the qual? If you are, if you said, hey, uh, you know, we can either give you the qualifying offer and and. Uh, and then you probably take it because you don't get a better offer, or we'll give you four twenty right now. Yeah, four twenty with the player option. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't, I don't know if somebody signing him up to that is all. I mean, maybe there's someone, but I don't, I don't know for yeah. sure if that's the case. I think it's plausible he doesn't get the quality. Like, like yeah. I think there are going to be teams that are going to worry about the years there, uh, and, and so I, I think it's. There is definitely a world where Cam Reddish is just an unrestricted free agent this summer. But anyway, I don't I don't think his value that's something that a team trading for him has to consider. Would you be They do get I mean it, he may not be restricted but they do get bird rights. So that's, you know, that is that is a little that is a lever regardless of whether the qualifying offer is 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 uh imposed or not. Can I say something though? Yeah. Bird rights are, are overrated sometimes. Bird rights are great when they're a player who's like really good and you have to bring back. But but Cam Reddish is has been like it's not like Cam Reddish is a super gonna be a super sought after free agent. Like he's just gonna be a guy out there. He's gonna be the guy who like maybe a team wants to go get him, and if they don't get him, they'll say, Okay, just move on to the next one in the same team. It's so, valuable insofar as okay, well we think he's a taxpayer mid we think he's a biannual level player. You can do it you can get him to a biannual contract without actually using that exception so right, without without like hard so you don't hard cap yourself you still have that exception if you want to use it so that it's like yes but it still is of use for of that, use. that play totally of use but not not a huge deal when you're talking about a player of that level it's not the it's not it's not equal in value to when you trade for somebody who's a 15 plus million dollar player a year that's fair but anyway Nick's Nick's uh, Nick's trade deadline stuff. I don't think they are going to do anything that compromises the future to get off of Fournier's money. Uh, they have been pretty consistent in telling other teams that you know that it's not like they have cap. Whether they get off of Fournier's money or not, they're not going to have cap room this summer. So they're not you know trying to attach pins or something like that just to get rid of his money. 
I could see them trying to bring back a large contract and use Fournier's money to try to bring back a large contract. And, you know, depending on who that might be, uh, maybe that would take putting in a pick or something like that. Uh, so, but, but I think that would be, they would, they would be able to say in that scenario, no, 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 the pick is there because we're bringing back a really good player who is going to help us now and into the future. So, so I could see them doing that. They've kind of been trying to use Fournier's salary and uh, to bring in larger money. Um, I've heard some stuff that I've heard that from enough teams that, that I know it's definitely true. Um, and they've, they've tried to attach Reddish to Fournier in a lot of these deals too. And you put those two guys together and that gets you about 24 million, which means you can bring back somebody who makes, you know, even brings, makes about 30. Uh, so that, that's really, that's it's John, really that's hard. John Collins money. That's John <laughs> Collins money, but I don't think yeah. on John Collins. no, uh, no, I'm I've, I'm off of I've, I'm off of trying and trade Collins to everyone, and have moved on to try and trade Kuzma to everybody. <laughs> yeah, Collins Collins doesn't make sense for them with yeah with Robinson and and uh, you know Hartenstein and Randall and Toppin already there. That's and Sims. I mean, that's I don't think Collins makes any sense for them. He's a, he doesn't really work, but he's a good player. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I I think they are trying to get a legitimate player. Everything that I hear is they are trying to get a legitimate player. Do you have a, um, Do you have any names? Guy. You have any names you can toss out there? Um, I mean, like if I mean the guy. I mean, just just guy who comes to mind. I, I I frankly don't see how they get there from an asset standpoint. Would be like Ananobi. I mean, it depends on how many picks you're willing to trade. Yeah. It, it just I, depends on how many picks you're willing to trade and, and whether Toronto wants those picks. Uh, you know, you can you could do Fournier and a bunch of picks for Ananobi if you want. I mean I think that I think they have all of their own first round picks. They have four first rounders from other teams. They The desirability of that hinges almost totally on uh, Masai deciding how short the Knicks he wants to be. Sure. That's true. That's true. Uh, but they could do it. Yeah. And now, now, if you give up multiple unprotected first rounders for OG Ananobi, then, you know, it's going to be really hard to make another star trade, right? Then it's going to be. I shouldn't say another star trade because he's not a star. He's just a, a high-end, excellent role player. Uh, it's going to be really hard to make a star trade in that case because, as we've seen, at least the way the market is today, uh, you know, they it, it takes unprotected picks to be able to trade for a star. And if you know the market is dictating that, say, two unprotected picks for OG and Anobi, then obviously a star is going to take three or four. And those protected picks they have from other teams—Washington, Dallas, Detroit. And Milwaukee, those protected picks are not going to hold anywhere near the same value as their own unprotected would. So that will be tough. They would have to wait another couple of years probably to to trade picks um, and, and, and go get somebody else. But, uh, you know, yeah, that's somebody who, who definitely comes to mind too, who's, you know, we'll see. But I, I don't know what the Raptors are specifically – willing to pull the trigger on for for Ananobi and, and what it would take. But the Knicks basically can put themselves 
they can go get anyone they want if they're willing to go trade enough picks. They they have enough picks to be able to go trade for whomever they want. It's just, are you willing to give up right. all those picks? It might not be a good trade, but they could do it. So before I let you go, is there, is there any anyone else who either from like and, and and you know you can be you can be clear whether things it's like I think this makes sense versus I've heard uh, that that you've heard that they might be in on or that you think make particular sense for them. Yeah, um, to be clear, right off the top, I'm just throwing out names that I think would make sense for them, not a. Uh, not the other way around. So I was actually going to brainstorm on this later because I'm I'm writing that trade piece for later. I think they need some sort of guard who can actually help them maybe soak up the Miles McBride minutes. I I don't hate the Eric Gordon thing. I don't. Uh, now, Houston is insisting that they want a first-round pick for Eric Gordon. But, like, you know, good luck with that. I don't think... I don't think that's happening. So they it's like they used the wrong kind of marker on the whiteboard. Yeah, it's, it's like that's, two years ago it was must have first rounders only, and they they didn't uh, they didn't use dry erase. They used yeah. you know sharpie. Right, it's like change the asking price, man. You're just never going to trade him as you continue to dwindle. And by the way, he's so openly miserable all the time. Like he's. <laughs> He is so openly miserable there. I was talking about this post-game press conferences. I was talking about this with someone, someone with some people this morning, and we were talking about the most openly don't want to be here. And we, you know, Ananobi was one. Zach Levine was another. Eric Gordon underrated uh, in that regard um, of of the 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 please get me out of here. Totally, and I don't, I don't hate. I, I, I would get it for Eric Gordon if, if, if it cost like a couple of seconds and just throw in, you know, you take on a salary for next year. So like you go Rose and Reddish for Eric Gordon or something like that. If, if you could, if they would do that, maybe you throw in a second round pick, they have a bunch of second round picks too. So you're fine. Like I, that's fine. That's two guys who aren't playing at all. Just for... give, 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 give poor Stephen Silas here. Here's Cam Reddish to deal with everything else you have to have to have to worry about with this team. Have well, fun. Cam Reddish is very the Rockets type, isn't he? He's athletic. He's got potential. He he needs to be honed. He's raw. Uh, he's he's very the Rockets type. That's that's the kind of guy the Rockets like to go after. So I I don't know specifically if they like Reddish or not, but I could see that working. Uh, and Rose, obviously, in that scenario, would get bought out and then could go sign with him every one. And it would just be there for salary purposes. But but I, um, you know, something like that, that would make sense to me. You know, Gordon's a guy who can shoot. He's not as good defensively as he used to be. But also, I'm not really confident saying how good or bad he is defensively for the exact reasons we were just talking about. Like, he's so openly miserable. He's well-rested. Probably. Yeah, he'll... He'll probably, if he goes to a winning situation, people, his defense will probably be better. Now, I don't know if it'll go back to what it was before, but he was always really strong, like un, like one of the physically strongest guards in the league. And you can switch with him because of that. Uh, you can guard multiple positions pretty competently. 
Uh, and and after a couple of years where his jump shot fell off, he's really recovered at the last two. He's a former six-man of the year. He's good coming off the bench. Uh, you know, you can play him with, with Brunson. You can play him with Grimes. You can play him with Quickly. You can play him with RJ. Like, I just, I think that adds an element for them. He gives you scoring off the dribble, and he, and he gives you a legitimate shooting threat, which they really need. So that's the first name that comes to mind. But I doubt the Knicks are giving up a first-round pick for him, and I would not give up a first-round pick for him, and I don't think anyone's going to give up a first-rounder for him. So, you know, we'll... Uh, We'll see. But that, that's one that comes. Hey, anybody else come to mind for you? I think somebody in that mold would make a lot of sense for them. If the Bulls just, like, break it down, I know he doesn't give you the offense that, uh, you know, he doesn't give you the offense that that you oh. would want. But Alex Caruso makes oh. a lot of sense. Alex Caruso makes sense on, on any team that thinks they're doing anything this year. So that's not, like, yeah. <laughs> Like it, yeah. he, like Alex Caruso will take a first round pick, I think, because I think a lot of teams. Wait, you you only want a second for him? Here, 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 take this one. Uh, like, no, I think if the Bulls decide to move on from Caruso, which you know, frankly, from what I'm hearing, they're they're not, because they, I mean, I think that they think that well, if we start trading Caruso, then we admit we messed up here, and we're not going to do that because then we'll all get fired. Yeah, which I wonder is, what Malik Beasley is going to take too. You went from like the most tipsy to the least tipsy player. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair. That's true. But, you know, guard can shoot and score a little bit. Uh, not not yeah, just can I mean, shoot, but will shoot. Which, oh, yeah. Yeah. Which I think you know, has a lot of value, actually, for, especially for a team that's offense can be kind of clunky. But Caruso would fit in really well with their identity. And if you have Caruso playing the Miles McBride minutes and then taking up some more minutes, so like now all of a sudden, I mean, your your guards defensively, Caruso, Grimes, and quickly is a ridiculously good defensive trio of guards. Like that is an insanely good trio of guards defensively. I mean, isn't um, Caruso what the best case scenario for Miles McBride is anyway? Yeah. Totally. He's like, well, he's bigger than McBride, so so he's probably he's probably better than the best case scenario for McBride because he's 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 just bigger. But Caruso is is the best case scenario for a lot every everyone in that ilk because he's an all defense caliber defender. So if the Bulls were going to move on from him, which like you said, we 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 don't know if they will, but if they were going to move on from him, I know he doesn't give you the offense that you need, but he also just like fits into their identity so well because his ball pressure is amazing it's it's incredible and he's so good guarding screens and they could really put out some insane defensive lineups with him coming up in the bench and obviously Tibbs would fall in love with him so fast I'll leave you with this since we we got there organically would you rather have Alex Cruz or RJ Barrett um, no, I'm sorry. Not <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, it, it, it had to be asked. Uh, we, I, I feel like we could talk about fake Nick trade ideas or any team fake trade ideas all day, but we don't have time for that. Uh, Fred, you got anything you want to plug coming up? Anything you have coming out soon other than uh, your Nick's trade deadline piece? Yeah, I got a trade deadline piece coming up. I got something I'm going to write about Julius Randle's three-point shot at some point in the next week or two. Uh, I'm working on a story. Um, that I'm actually really excited about. It's uh, it's hardly going to um, blow up the internet, but if you are a nerd like I am, I'm working on a story about Emmanuel Quickly's 
uh, defensive communication and how he's become this insane communicator on defense. Uh, and I'm excited about it. And quickly was super cool in the interview and was really, he was like totally into it and really good. And uh, Mitchell Robinson has a couple of totally and completely ridiculous quotes about quickly, which are very Mitchell Robinson like and very hilarious. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it about that piece because that is that is some true nerddom right there and i'm always excited to put those sorts of things together well there you go uh fred katz of the athletic uh and formerly of clipper blog rip uh thanks a lot for coming on as always um great to talk to you thank you for having me on all right thanks for listening folks we'll be back uh possibly over the weekend but or next week with more Colin shots